0: I must break you Welcome to I Must Break this podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren Hello and welcome back to I Must Break this podcast. This is the fan podcast that takes an in-depth look at the films of He-Man himself, Dolph Lundgren. Today we're going back to 1994 and taking a look at the action drama Men of War. In this action-packed character piece, Lundgren portrays Nick Gunner, a retired mercenary who's hired to clear out an island of innocent villagers so that his employers can strip the island of its minerals. Yet Gunnar has a change of heart and becomes the island's savior as he takes on his employers in an all-out war. Gunner. We're in the market for someone with your special talents. I don't do that anymore. It's in our blood, Nick. You can't do anything else because your heart isn't in it. In this ocean. We're hitting a tiny island at the edge of the South China Sea. On this island. We go in, lean on the locals, so and convince them to sign the contract. People live a life of peace. What caused the people you want me to shoot at, man? Lighter than you, but darker than me. Until an army of mercenaries. We can make you a very rich man. Came to invade their world. Nobody signed paper once. You don't get it, do you? How much money they pay you to burn our island? Well, if we don't do it, they'll just sell somebody else. Nick Gunner is a soldier who's hired to wage wars. We're prepared to do a job! Let's do it, man! But in the soul of a people. Your move, boss. Put the gun down, please. He has discovered something worth fighting for. As of now, take control of this island. If you want to stay, stay. If not, your pay is on the ship. Well, I'm the only one they want dead. To... We're in it all the way. You know, I envy you. You're gonna die for something you believe in. Welcome to hell. Based on the original screenplay by Academy Award nominee John Sales, Dolph Lundgren, Charlotte Lewis. You want a gunfight? You got one. Men of War. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and joining me to discuss this film once again is my good buddy, and now somewhat regular to the show, Jeremy Damasu. Jeremy, thanks for coming back and chatting this one with me today.
1: Thanks, Sean. It's great to be back, and especially to discuss uh, probably one of the best uh, movies that Dolph Rundgren has made in his career, Men of War.
0: This really is, this really is the, uh, I, I feel, one of the shining achievements in his filmography. And when, you know, when I was starting this up and talking to you about it, I remember you saying, okay, look, I have got to be on for Men of War. And it, it certainly makes sense because this is, I feel, one of his, one of his best films. Um, It's certainly one of my favorites. And, you know, when I watched this again just a couple days ago in preparation for this, you know, 24 years ago that this thing was made, but it still holds up. This film holds up beautifully and it just everything about this film, I feel, is is flawless. I mean, his Lundgren's performance is amazing. The characters are also rich. The action is great, but it has so much heart and emotion at at its core. I mean, this this film is is amazing in every angle. So I've really been looking forward to discussing this one with you
1: yeah and and it's especially it's also a very i mean it's very well written and we'll discuss you know there's a reason for that and also uh uh it's a very polished elegantly shot uh film and you know it was really made uh you know in the intent of the the director and the producer to make a really good movie, not just you know a typical be action flick, and uh, you can tell.
0: Yeah, most definitely. I mean, this is this was distributed by Dimension Films, and Dimension Films, at least here in the States, this was, uh, um, Dimension Films was the genre banner for Miramax, and this was filmed actually before Johnny Mnemonic, but released to home video in December of 1995, after the release of Johnny Mnemonic, and it really is, and we'll get into this, but it really is just such a shame that the producers or uh, well, excuse me, the distributors of the film, at least here in the States did not have the faith in it. And the fact that it was just dumped on home video here in the States, because this film, I think if it had been given the theatrical release that a- as it was intended and that it's so rightfully deserved, this would have surprised a lot of people. And this could have given Lundgren that, uh, that, that, that push to his career that, he you know so desperately deserved and needed
1: yeah and, and it was a uh, you know a strange story because uh sony had acquired the rights originally and then miramax dimension um upped you know i think they they gave more money uh to the um, you know the sales agents and you know, um, like a hundred, you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars to get the film and saying, you know, we're going to give this a theatrical release. And, you know, apparently it got really excellent, uh, reviews at test screenings that they had. And, you know, at the last minute, Miramax decided against it. And, uh, part of the reason was, they didn't believe that Dolph could lead, uh, a film by his name and especially as a, as a leading man, as a good guy. Uh, and that's really a shame. Uh, I, I don't know how successful, uh, it would have been, uh, because 1995 was already kind of the, the time that his star was declining. Um, but, uh, you know, I got the chance to see it on the big screen, uh, in France where it, it got a theatrical release. I think almost everywhere in Europe, except in England and Germany, you know, it got a decent number of screens, uh, here in France, but they, they dumped it, uh, at the worst time, um, for, you know, French movie releases, uh, in the middle of the summer, which at the time was not, a time where French people, you know, go to the movies, they're on vacation and everything. So the, you know, the box office results are not the greatest. And I remember seeing Marquis, you know, advertising the film and everything. Um, but, uh, so it was great to see it, uh, uh, at the cinema. Uh, but it's a shame that it wasn't given the proper, uh, respect and treatment. They should have, uh, at least from the, you know, the box office. On the other hand, uh, it earned some really great reviews in papers. Uh, probably some of the best reviews or the best reviews that a Dolph Rundgren film ever got. And, uh, you know, in simple words, most says that, you know, it appears to be like a, you know, typical action film starring Dolph Rundgren. And, you know, it could be, it could appear as a kind of a dumb action movie, but it's not. And it's a really good surprise. And that, like, you could claim to appreciate this film without, you know, uh, passing for, uh, you know, a moron. And it, it's totally true, especially given how the film uh, avoids some of the clichés, avoids... Um, depicting the natives um... as like, you know, um... people that the 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 imperialist Americans should save and everything and they're they're kind of smarter than the the American mercenaries, um... and I think it's uh... you know, due to um... the writing of John Sells, who's One of the, um, you know, he's not a huge name. He's not very popular, but it's one of the most acclaimed independent director, uh, in America, um, with some really, uh, you know, he's kind of an activist in his way. And, you know, his films tackle social issues and stuff like that. And, uh, you can tell in a way from Men of War, even though that was, um, Kind of uh, a paycheck for him since it was a work for hire. Uh, in the, I think he wrote it around 1986, 87. Uh, before he got more famous and also before he was like a, he became a big shot in terms of being a script doctor for big Hollywood movies, uh, that he did uncredited, especially a lot of, uh, movies by Ron Howard uh stuff like Jurassic World and um you know the Quick and the Dead and many many movies that he's not credited for but the shooting script is his uh so anyway uh yeah it it's really a shame that he didn't get the theatrical release in America and um and also that I can tell from comments on the internet uh a lot of people say you know hey i i've never heard of this or you know it took me a a, a while to to discover it uh, but thankfully it seems to be rediscovered and i really think it's a movie that we should give a proper acclaim um uh, and it's it's got to be remembered
0: well, yeah, and that's the thing is you know, he, uh, and I'll I'll let listeners know right now. You and I are going to be <laughs> just pretty much praising and and gushing over this film for the next, you know, for the next hour or two, and you know, which is interesting because yeah, like you said, as amazing as the film is, it's still one of those movies that kind of has just flown under the radar for the past twenty some odd years, and you know, I, I think obviously the 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 hardcore doll fans like you and I are just you know the hardcore. Uh, fans of the action genre in general, um, I think, know about it. But to the general public, it's still one of those things that you know has kind of gone unnoticed. And you know, I've said it before, and I, I've really noticed this now. Going in order and rewatching and analyzing each of Dolph's films, and then you know going back through and and, and you know researching the production of them and all of those things. And, you know, I've said it before, but I think the biggest detractor for why Lundgren was not able to rise to the ranks of Schwarzenegger and Stallone um, was because his films were simply not given a fair shake, both at the box office or, you know, in the case of Army of One and Men of War, simply not believed in by the distributors. Now, I don't think Men of War would have broken records, but I do think it would have been A somewhat modest hit or, you know, at the very least, I think it would have gotten its budget back. you know, I was I was listening to a a podcast about a week or two ago and they were talking about the actor uh, Taylor Kitsch. Are you familiar with Taylor Kitsch?
1: Not at all. Maybe I know his face, but I I really can't tell uh, who that is from the name.
0: Okay, so Taylor Kitsch, you know, he is this, uh, you know, he's not a bad actor, and, you know, he, you know, is, is, you know, a handsome guy and everything, but unfortunately, the films that he has been in, especially the films that he did around 2011, 2012, just tanked financially at the box office. He did, uh, he did the John Carter of Mars one that, that was put out by Disney. He did Battleship. Yeah. And, you know, he... He has charisma. He's a decent actor, but the films that he has done just uh, have not uh, have not performed financially and successfully. And so as a result, he has found himself kind of in this uh, this I don't know if you want to call it purgatory, but he is you know he is, he's in Hollywood not not working as prevalently as maybe he should. And I, I kind of wonder, you know, I kind of I heard those statements and I look at Taylor Kitsch and I kind of think you know, I feel like in the early career of, of Lundgren, you know, especially, you know, from 1985 to 1995, if maybe he was experiencing some of those same, uh, some of those same issues. And now, thankfully, you know, you got to give him credit, you know, as as Chris Prentice has said on the previous episodes, you know, Lundgren is a survivor and he has been able to prolong his career and he's still working to this day. But I look at, um, you know, things like Men of War and think, man, if this had been given the shot, I think it could have surprised many. And maybe Lundgren would be at a different place. And maybe he would have been given different roles. I don't know.
1: Yeah, and and also Lundgren had the chance to be there at the right place at the right time because, you know, his acting career started um, at the full boom of the muscle-bound action hero of the 80s. Um otherwise I'm not sure he would have got the career he had and the following that he had. Uh but even though he wasn't as successful as the you know Stallone and Arnold and then Jean Claude and Cigar, uh still he appeared at that time and and that was perfect. Uh also I think regarding Men of War, um you know, as I said, the, the script was written uh around 86 87 which was you know uh following platoon and uh post vietnam movies like this and i also believe that uh had it been released in the late 80s it would have been a you know it would have been better for uh you know i think it would probably have gotten a proper you know, release and maybe some success. Um, so it's a shame that the film, uh, took, you know, about seven years to get made and there was a lot going on, uh, to get it off the ground. Uh, so it seems to me that it, it's one of those movies that came a little too late. You know, 94, even 95 was, um, you know, it was, it was a time that was. Um, I think this was when the 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 um, everything was changing, especially for action cinema. And Men of War is a bit like a timeless film, and uh, it's also one of the kind of film that we don't even see uh, nowadays. Uh, kind of a you know action war film set in the jungle. I mean, I can't remember. The last time i saw one like this
0: now and you know you were talking about when you first saw this film um you were talking about how you know you were able to fortunately see it here in the theaters as i stated you know this was here in the states unfortunately dumped on home video now i do distinctly remember first even hearing about it i saw a trailer for it it was attached uh that the trailer for the film was attached to a videotape the, the sylvester stallone 1995 film Judge Dredd, and Judge Dredd was put out by Hollywood Pictures, which was kind of in the same. Um, I, I guess Hollywood Pictures and Dimension Films had some kind of agreement of sorts, because if you picked up their films, they would have trailers for for each of their films. Um, and you yeah, know, for I a-
1: I think they were both linked to Disney, and especially regarding yeah. the distribution of their uh, home video tapes and laser discs.
0: Yeah. And, you know, for a home video release, I I always thought it was a great trailer. Um, It was a trailer that I watched a few times, actually, on the Judge Dredd videotape. I distinctly remember being, let's see if it was 95. I believe I was 12, 13 years old. So I remember... Watching Judge Dredd and then rewinding the tape to go back <laughs> and and watch that trailer again because it is a solid trailer. Even again, making it all the more unfortunate, it was not given a theatrical release. However, I also remember it getting for a direct-to-video film. I remember it getting you know a, a fair amount of marketing. At, you know, like I said, at least for a direct-to-video film, <laughs> I distinctly remember at my local video store they had a news uh, a newsletter at the front that would promote um, their upcoming releases. And I remember Men of War getting actually a full-page write-up or a full-page ad advertising its, its upcoming release. So, you know, I, I do remember that kind of marketing. But, you know, the one thing I will add about this that I always thought was interesting, especially, again, watching it, you know, w- within the past couple of days, this is the first real war movie that Lundgren did. I mean, I guess you could say that Red Scorpion was a war movie in a sense, but I feel that Red Scorpion is much more cartoonish in line with, uh, with Rambo two and three men of yeah. war is much more grounded and realistic. And I would say that, you know, where Red Scorpion is in tune with Rambo two and three men of war is certainly on par with 2008's Rambo in terms of its tone, its violence, its character dynamics and its overall realism. Would you agree?
1: I didn't think about it that, but that's a good analogy. Uh I also think that uh, actually talking about the marketing whether it's theatrical or or video I think the 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 marketing in my opinion and my taste was not up to the standards of the film and so uh for sure if you didn't know about it you would think it it would be a really kind of dumb and macho action flick you know, like with the kind of taglines that could, could work, you know, a few years before, uh, saying like, you know, warriors paid to fight, not to think and stuff like that. That's about to Um, change. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm showing Longgren as like a, you know, um, fully armed with a, you know, belt of bullets and stuff like that. Um, uh for sure they were trying to attract the the action fans, but on the other hand, uh I don't know. Um I, I think the, the, the marketing of it was also a bit off all the time.
0: Yeah, well, this feels like a real Hollywood movie, and for it being a direct-to-video film, um, I, I, I you know, it certainly doesn't belong alongside some of those other direct-to-video action schlock pieces that were that were permeating video store shelves during this period. Um, but like you said, you know, the Weinstein's, <sighs> they, they didn't feel that Dolph had the star power to help sell the film in theaters, let alone as the good guy. So it was dumped to home video. But if you watch it, um. Again, by today's standards, it feels like a real Hollywood movie. And one of the other strengths to the film are, if we, if so, if we get into the film, the opening title sequence I always felt was a real strength to it. Um, this is an action movie, sure, but the opening titles are very simplistic. You have this light blue font. Set to this melancholic musical score, uh, we are shown these uh, dilapidated buildings. I believe this takes place, or this was filmed in Chicago. So we are shown these dilapidated buildings and these tenements, and what I'm assuming is wintertime. It really helps truly sell the film as not just being another dumb action clunker fest. You know, you can tell that this one was taken seriously and truly has something to say. You know, they. I always felt looking at these opening titles. They certainly could have gone the other way and made this, you know, not as intelligent and not as, you know, polished looking, but they didn't, which was a wise move. Looking at these opening titles, especially nowadays, it's weird because it almost has the vibe of being, at least this is what I felt. You watch them and it almost has the vibe of being this, uh, this kind of small town football movie like, uh, Rudy or all the white, all the right moves. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> but I, I agree on the, the opening titles and I, I love them uh and you know the fact is that you know uh it was a director video in the states but it was produced and shot to be a theatrical film and it was shot in anamorphic cinemascope um you know and, and uh also i uh you have to to say that's something to mention that the director Perry Lang um, he began his career as an actor when he was young. And, you know, he was an, a- an actor. He appeared in like, uh, uh, the Steven Spielberg movie, 1941. And also a big, uh, a movie that really marked his career and himself as a, as a person and an actor and a filmmaker was, uh, to be one of the cast of, Uh, The Big Red One, the film by Samuel Fuller, uh, who's been a big influence on him, and they've been really close uh, until Fuller's death. And, you know, if if you know a little bit about Samuel Fuller's career, uh, he's done many genre movies and war movies with a humanistic uh, touch and themes to it, and Men of War is definitely the kind of films that he, he could have directed. And uh, um, also in that sense, I think the film has the sensibility of, you know, classic action-adventure films of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, also, like, um, films by uh, Raoul Walsh, um, especially Object- Objective Norma, uh, Objective Burma, sorry. And, you know, it could have been made in the sixties or the metaphor could have been made in the sixties or seventies. And, uh, I know that, uh, there was an opening that was written at some point, uh, and quickly rejected. I'm not even sure it was written, uh, in the script, but, uh, there was a synopsis that I have with like an opening in like, uh, where was it? I think it was in um oh I forgot Afghanistan uh to make like a backstory between Gunnar and Kiefer uh but there was also Perry Lang had another idea for an opening which was which would be set uh in Sweden uh with Dolph's character as a kid uh maybe to be shot in black and white in the snow and stuff like that the um, the big thing about um, what became Men of War is that, um, one of the reasons that the the movie could get made was that the executive producer who helped finance the film ultimately, uh, was Moshe Diamond, uh, who was, you know, he's famous for producing, uh, Van Damme's films of the time, like Double Impact and, you know, Maximum Risks and, um you know he's done many movies with van damme he wasn't really a big fan of the script uh and i heard even ultimately he hated the movie as it was made but so his uh demands were always to add more action um so like uh uh writers were brought in to add action throughout the film And, uh, because originally the movie was just progressing, progressing dramatically. And, um, it was pretty much the same as the the actual movie, except that you didn't have like the kickboxing scene. You didn't have, uh, some of the action pieces, uh, that are in the film. Uh, and, um, you know, the drama was just evolving until the final act of the film, the last third of the film, was just all action uh, throughout the end. So I assume it would have given a different feeling and could have been also, you know, make more impact for the action to kick in in the last part.
0: Maybe so. But, you know, Nick Gunner, you know, this is our main character. The character traits for Nick Gunner are established earlier in the film. And this is one of the other things about the film that i love and i think that makes it just stand out so much in lundgren's filmography is the, the the fact that they are acknowledging and uh bringing in his swedish heritage i mean he is a the character of nick Gunnar is this broke burnt out loner who wanders the street carries a flask of liquor that is imported from sweden he's this former mercenary who we are to assume has completed horrific acts in the past that are just mentally and emotionally scarring him. This is a fantastic role for Dolph. And like I said, it's the first role in his filmography. I mean, he had played a Russian a couple times already, but this is the first one that is allowing him to embrace his Swedish heritage. In fact, it's a repeated line throughout the film where he just states Swedish like me. I thought that was, that was really cool. And I can only imagine that, that Lundgren really appreciated that and loved that, that character touch.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That was that was great, and also brought up uh, with a touch of humor in it, uh, and some of the characteristics of uh, Nick Garner. I'm sure uh, were ideas that Dolph brought in as well, and also, and it seems realistic. I'm not a specialist of this, but John Sales, when I interviewed him, told me that it was. Common that some of these mercenaries would come from um, uh, pla- places like Sweden or uh, sometimes South Africa and stuff like that. So, uh, so it was uh, it wasn't like a, something thrown in that uh, just to fit uh, Dolph. And for sure, um, he was uh, enthusiastic about it. Be able to play a swedish character for the first time in his career especially since at the time he was uh trying to get off um a project set in sweden during the the civil war um and so um anyway yeah uh that was a great great thing and it, it, it works in the film and especially since also we can say that. So many people still still today don't know that he's Swedish. Uh, no, they either don't know where he comes from, or they think he's German or Russian or, you know.
0: Yeah. No. And and there are so many things. Like like I said, he he carries the flask of liquor that's that's imported from Sweden. Um, even at the very end, in the final assault, the the rocket launcher, the weapon that he is using, is is uh his his mentor remarks that that is Swedish. So the little things like that I really have to appreciate, especially as fans of Lundgren watch the film. But the the film dives immediately into the plot of the film, I and mean, it is within the first few minutes. Gunner is approached by two yuppies named Warren and Lyle, who are these businessmen who are hoping to recruit Nick in order to complete a mission that requires the use of mercenaries. Uh, Warren and Lyle are played by Thomas Gibson, and <laughs> the character of Lyle is actually portrayed by the director of the film Perry Lane. Yep. So I was, Absolutely. I always thought that was interesting that uh, that the director plays this small role in here. But both of these actors are doing a great job to where you can, as soon as they come on screen, you know that they're businessmen, but you know that they're up to something shady here. And so that's what I love. I mean, why else would they be acquiring uh, the use of mercenaries? And so as a result, Gunner is reluctant, but he does speak to his mentor Merrick. Who is portrayed by kevin teague who convinces him to accept the job as 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 merrick states war is in his blood and it's what he knows and it's what he's good at we also find out that it was merrick who recommended Gunnar to warren and lyle one of the things i was going to add to this especially as we get into the team of mercenaries is this film has a great cast i mean as you watch it nowadays every time one of these actors pops up on screen that the film is populated by such solid character actors who have been in so many films before, and so the character of Merrick, who is Lundgren's mentor, um, he has you know he has that face you know that big toothy grin of his. He <laughs> he has this face that you've seen in so many other films prior to this, and so many films after this. So, like I said, this is not just another one of those dumb, clunky action pictures that came direct to video. You can tell that you know there is some real talent working behind the scenes and then on the screen as well.
1: Yeah, uh exactly. And like you said, so many of these actors are character actors that uh a lot of them actually had already worked, new uh Perry Lang and John Sales. Um and uh like Kevin Tig I had seen him um he was in the John Sales movies, but I had seen him in Roadhouse, like many others, I'm sure. Um, and, uh, for instance, I actually love their first scene where they talk about, you know, uh, the book The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Also, then they're playing chess, which is also a, a nice touch in terms of the, um, uh, you know, the plot of the film and also to portray it off as, you know, at first is like, shown as a totally beat character, which I like as well, but also you can tell that, you know, he's smart and he's also, he has, you know, like Merrick says, you know, it needs the touch of a poet and he has a, a kind of a philosophical, spiritual side to it that you can already uh, spot. Uh, regarding the other actors, I think we'll probably uh, get back to them as we
0: uh, continue. Yeah, no. And so we're to assume that Gunnar accepts this job, and he sets out to to assemble his crew. So we get a fantastic montage sequence here where Nick is traveling the world, gathering his old team. I just have a question for you. How much time would you say is being spent here? As we see him going to Thailand, we see him going over to New York. So if he's traveling the world to assemble this team, what do you think? Do you think it's a few weeks, or do you think he's devoting a couple months?
1: That's a good ke- question. I, I'd assume probably a few weeks. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, um, uh, maybe a couple of weeks or, or less or more. Uh, also depends how it travels. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a, it's a nice, nice montage and a, a, a nice, uh, way to introduce the characters, especially. And, um, yeah, and it, and it also sets the, the film and the plot and in, in a way that's uh, actual you know it's like real storytelling uh, and uh, I think the one of the strengths of the film as well is that you know it's not on Dolph's shoulder alone it's a real ensemble piece and every character you know has something to him and uh, that's why it was important to have good actors in it uh, but it's also something you don't have in many action films, especially of that era where, you know, the the action star was just driving the movie.
0: No, I mean, this film is called Men of War. So it is it is a men on a mission movie. So it only makes sense that Perry Lang would want to cast, you know, these these character actors for the role and give each each character its own little um arc, if you will. So that's one of the things that I appreciate it. But if we look at this, if we look at this group of mercenaries at Gunner's team, all, every one of these actors has been in something to where you've seen their face. So if you run down the list, you have the character of Jamal, who's played by Tom Wright. Uh, Tom Wright was also in the film Marked for Death, but personally, I recognize him. He had an extremely memorable role in the television show Seinfeld. He was a colleague of George Costanza's when George Costanza worked for the New York Yankees. So Tom Wright plays Jamal. Um, the character of Blades. Look, everybody knows Tommy Tiny Lister. Tommy Tiny Zeus Lister. <laughs> um, he plays the character of Blades. And this is actually the second collaboration between Lundgren and Lister after Universal Soldier. Um, Don Harvey plays the character of Nolan. Uh, Don Harvey, I guess was a, was a good friend of or excuse me, is a good friend of Perry Lang's. So Perry Lang, you know, definitely called upon him for this. But Don Harvey is a great character actor who typically plays the bad guy. He just has that, that face about him. And so he was in the films casualties of war, the untouchables. He, while he does play a villain, I've always, I've always noticed about his career that he always typically plays the, the goofy villain or the, the one who is a little inept, you know, at accomplishing his, his tasks. Tony Dennison. From a number of television shows like Jag and the Closer, plays Jimmy G. And then lastly, the character of Ocker. I love this character of Ocker. Ocker is played by Tim Guinea, who I didn't recognize at first when, when I first saw this, but going back through and doing research, Tim Guinea has gone on to have an accomplished career. Um, in recent years, He, I've noticed he's very good at playing the typical everyman or the family man. If you look at the films Promised Land and 99 Homes, Tim Guinea plays this role perfectly. However, he's working with this Australian accent and he's like the the ultimate pacifist. So you wouldn't really notice that that is Tim Guinea. But yeah, he has gone on. If you, it seems like Hollywood, if they need a family man or if they need, you know, someone to play that typical everyman taking care of his family. Tim Guinea is the is the guy who they hire.
1: Yeah, he, he also had in recent years, maybe 10 years ago or so, and it's a shame because I can't remember the name, but he, he had a, a big run in a, t, in a popular TV show, but I can't remember what it was. But I know he, he's become pretty popular following Men of War. And, uh, uh, and then later you'll have um, Catherine Bell as well, who was... You know, unknown at the time, but she's uh, also become quite a, a a big star in TV uh, with Jag, and recently, I think another TV show in the realm of the army.
0: Oh, army wives.
1: Uh, oh, right. Yeah, that's yeah, it. yeah,
0: yeah. Well, and what what I thought was so interesting about this, you know, Jag was a television show that I never really even watched. But what I think is interesting is how so many of these actors in the film reunited uh on the show on the show jag so we have like you said uh catherine bell um she comes back she's in the show jag uh tony dennison the the character of jimmy g he was in the show jag a few times and then our main villain of the film uh the character of Kiefer, portrayed by the late great trevor goddard he also had a role in that show so i always thought that was just an interesting little anecdote uh, the fact that this this legal drama, <laughs> this legal drama television show that aired for so many years was able to reunite many of the key players from the cast of Men of War. Yeah. So um, the mission of these mercenaries, you know, it appears to be fairly simple. We know that as as the audience, they're going to go in. They think they're going in to do a relatively easy job. But we know as an audience that, you know, it's not going to turn out like that so they're to go into this small island off of the south china sea and convince the locals to sign over the mining rights however these guys are mercenaries so they're going to convince them by any means necessary when gunner and his men first arrive to the island or excuse me a neighboring island they they arrive at a bar and a nightclub on the outskirts of the island and we're introduced to the final member of the team you brought her up already a uh, catherine bell she plays the character of Grace Lashfield, who is this wandering soul looking for work. One of the other things that I appreciate about this film is what, the, what Men of War could have done. And, you know, I, I think you'd agree with me on this one, Jeremy, is for the the female role in this film, what they could have done was they could have cast this completely, you know, knockout bombshell. And I, I'm not saying that Catherine Bell is not attractive by any means, because she is. But... She's kind of unrecognizable in in this film. If you look at her in this film, and if you look at her today, it's 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 kind of wild looking at her because she really almost kind of downplays her beauty in this film. If Men of War was made within the past couple of years, they would have cast someone who was what twenty one, twenty two, if that even, and she'd have been wearing makeup the entire movie, and it just would have been completely unbelievable. But this is Men of War they're 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 keeping it real and they're trying to be as realistic as they possibly can so i have to give them major props for that
1: yeah the, the, she well she's kind of you know her character is kind of playing tomboy yeah uh and i think it was a great coincidence because uh i believe initially they or uh one of the producers wanted to cast uh femke jensen you know from the from the Bond movie and, uh, and other films. Um, and, uh, I can't remember why, uh, she, she couldn't do it or something. Well, maybe because she, she was doing, I think it was the year she did Golden Eye, uh, uh if I'm not mistaken. So anyway, uh, ultimately the role, uh, went to Catherine Bell. She's great in it. I mean, you mentioned, you know, how she looks now. Uh, actually, I think she looked much better than, than now, especially since she seems to have done a, a bit of surgery. But yeah, she doesn't have overly done makeup like she's plain and, you know, with a, with a great shortcut and just looks beautiful as she is.
0: Well, and, you know, I was watching, and this 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 film will be a uh, an episode ways down the line, but I actually just watched the, the latest uh, Lundgren film, uh, Blackwater, the one where he reteams with with Jean-Claude Van Damme. And, you know, what what is, what is kind of, I don't want to say disturbing, but one of the things that takes me personally out of these films is, you know, Jean-Claude's uh, female accomplice in that film, both at the beginning of the film and then later on in the film. I don't want to get too much into it. But his female accomplices in the film look like they just stepped out of a Victoria's Secret, you know, catalog shoot. <laughs> I mean, and we're supposed right. to supposed to believe them as being these cia operatives and it's just like i said it takes me it takes me out of the film because first of all they are they are way too young uh to be believable in this role but also especially for for van damme you know who is you know a guy approaching 60 it's just a little a, a little odd to see but again this was men of war is 94 95 they are they're taking a chance and like you said she's playing a a, a tomboy in this film Um, but still has those, those feminine characteristics and feminine traits. I, I have to give them, I have to give them credit and props for this because by casting Catherine Bell, they did a great job. And Catherine Bell is doing, is doing a great job in this role also.
1: Yeah. And not to focus on, uh, on their physique, but like casting Bell and her character, you know, she's got some wit. You know, she's got a personality. It's not just a, a female character thrown in. Right. Uh, and it's also something that I, I feel is lacking uh, nowadays, especially in action movies and direct to video action movies uh, with character, female characters and actresses that look the same, uh, like they come from the same Hollywood mold that, you know, there are so many of them and they, they just, uh, you know, they, they just, uh, show the, the, the same things. Like they want to look alike and, you know, they have the same kind of haircut and attitudes and how they talk and everything, uh, rather than showing personality and being cast, you know, uh, for their personality and what they bring as, as, as actresses. And so, yeah, Castring Bell was, was a great choice and as well as also, um, uh, uh, the other main female character, uh, played by Charlotte Lewis, which was also an unlikely choice, uh, but she's great in the movie and, and she's not like the, you know, uh, foxy native that seduces the leading man and everything. So, you know, she, she very, she's very much like, you know, it's kind of like she stands out by underplaying it and underplaying you know, who she is and how beautiful she is and, you know, and her personality. Because she's got also, there are two women who's got convictions and, you know, say what they think and everything.
0: Right. Well, Gunnar and his men, they they do, like you said, they they are, this is, it was originally written as a full-on drama with, it was kind of like a slow bomb which uh, where everything is building up to this end. And so, yeah, Moshe Diamant, when he comes on board as the producer, he wanted some more action. So we get this requisite, you know, action sequence in the bar. Gunner and his men get into a fight at the bar, which unfortunately gets the attention of Kiefer. So we said already that Kiefer is the main villain of the film. He's portrayed by the late great Trevor Goddard. Kiefer is a former associate of Gunners and the two have a bit of a tortured past. We don't know exactly what went down between the two, but we do know that they do have a hatred for one another. There is a, a small part of me that wants a little more background on their history, but then again, I think it's better that it's not elaborated upon. It leaves you guessing, but Trevor Goddard is amazing in this role, and I always felt that watching it back in 95, watching it now, he still, as you can tell, he is having so much fun in, in this role as Kiefer. But he exudes such cruelty and disgust, especially when we first see him come on screen. When we first meet him, he has these, twerks, or excuse me, these quirks that he keeps doing with his tongue, which is kind of disturbing and unsettling. And he also has a cross shaved onto his chest. Later on in the film, when we see him, when he is shirtless, he's wearing these, uh, these bands around his biceps. I mean, he almost kind of looks in a little way, <laughs> kind, of, kind of like a WWE wrestler, in, in a sense. It's bizarre kind of disturbing, but his, his villain is memorable. You remember the character of Kiefer when he steps on screen, and then when, as soon as he he dies at the end, he is one of the things that you're going to, that's going to stick with you, that you're going to remember.
1: Yeah, uh, he's, yeah, he's a very colorful character in some way, I want to say uh, in the vein of um, Universal Soldiers, Andrew Scott. Yeah. Um, uh, and also, Also, you can think of, you know, Vernon Wells. What's the name of his character in uh, Commando?
0: Oh, I didn't even think about that. I didn't even think about that. But yeah, he is. They are kind of channeling channeling the same thing. Yeah, you're right.
1: Yeah, yeah. But uh, I I think they played around with adding uh, more stuff about their background. But at the same time, Kiefer was also a character that was added to the screenplay later on. Originally, the, the... the, the main antagonist to Gunnar was was actually Merrick, and their you know um, antagonist relationship evolved until the end, where they have their final confrontation in what was the the, the initial uh, screenplay.
0: Wow, I can certainly see that. But the the, the character of Keeper, he is now apparently he is working as the quote unquote law of the island, and because of his disdain for Gunner, he threatens to imprison Gunner and his men to six months' hard labor for destroying this bar, getting into a bar fight. So Gunner challenges Kiefer to a fight, since that's apparently what Kiefer wants. Gunner challenges Kiefer to a fight so that they do not have to go to prison, which Kiefer sees as the ultimate opportunity to use the army under his command to further threaten Gunner. Uh, basically, Gunner is to take a vicious beating in order to ensure the safety of his men. I love this scene for so many reasons, because, well, first of all, it is slightly disturbing, but we get to see the character of Gunner, you know, Dolph Lundgren's character. We get to we see that he is human and that he is vulnerable. And we also get to see the cruelty of this character of Kiefer. I mean, as soon as he comes on screen, we 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 hate him immediately. What, what would you like to add about that?
1: I'd had that. Like you said, uh, he's disturbing and because he plays it in such a way that the character is both kind of almost comical or goofy but at the same time frightening and seems psychologically disturbed and menacing and, you know, and he's, um, you never know what to expect. So, he's uh, very unpredictable and that's the thing, it's like when... You know, he suddenly shot, shoots one of his men. You know, out of out of nowhere. So that definitely up the stakes, and how he, you know, stands against Dolph Nick Gunner. Um, and you can tell how he was brought in to have a physically and psychologically challenging opponent opponent to Dolph.
0: Right. Well, and it, it's, it's such a shame that we lost the, you know, that we lost Goddard when we did because he was a great actor. He typically played villains. I mean, I think he's probably best known as the character of Kane from the Mortal Kombat movie. But anytime he is on screen, he is just I mean, like you said, he's that actor who he's playing the role almost comical, almost, you know, comical, almost maybe even a little cartoonish in a way but you're still frightened by him. You're still, you're still scared by him. He can still, you know, be imposing and intimidating. So I love this. But yeah, uh, the character of Gunner takes this vicious beating, um, all, like I said, to ensure the safety of his men. One of the other things that we haven't really talked about that I would like to touch upon a little bit is the character of Nick Gunner. I mean, if you look at this film compared to Red Scorpion, Lundgren is essentially playing, I wouldn't so much say the same character, but the story beats are basically the same. You know, both Nikolai Rechenko from Red Scorpion and Nick Gunner are these mercenary soldier characters who are hired to commit an act that is immoral. They have a change of conscience along the way, and they end up protecting those who they were sent to kill. I always thought this was interesting that Lundgren went back to essentially do the same story as Red Scorpion? You know, would you agree? I mean, did you notice that, or did you think that at all between the the parallel Excuse me, between Red Scorpion and Nenovor, or Nikolai rochenko and Nick Gunner?
1: Yeah, abs- absolutely. This is, uh, I think, I've always thought. I mean, the the in some way the the premises of the two films are similar, uh, even though they're two different beasts, two different, very different movies. And it's something that was recurrent in Lundgren's filmography, uh, in those years. Uh, you know, I wrote, a, uh, I wrote, a, um, a master's thesis on his films about 15, 17 years ago. And part of my thesis was to show how Lundgren, uh, regularly played, uh, kind of like the, um, The super soldier or the machine, you know, who's, um, manipulated by his superiors and somehow turns against them. Uh, and notably by, you know, questioning himself, questioning his missions and also throughout finding and sort of recovering his humanity. And in some way, this is like the. You know the frankenstein creature that he was even back in red scorpion where at the end he had some kind of a little bit of rebellion so then there was red scorpion and now made of war and also it was uh kind of the same theme in the upcoming silent trigger and to a lesser extent Uh, and and a bit more cheesy, the 1999 uh, flake Bridge of Dragons.
0: Right, right. Yeah, no, I was going to bring that up as well. Yeah, Bridge of Dragons, he is again playing this this same character. But Men of War is so much better. I mean...
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's no question.
0: So, yeah, Nick and his men are able to enter the island, and they're greeted by the character of Poe, who appears to be the speaker for the island. This is... Played by another great character actor who's still working today, still pops up in tons of stuff, B. D. Wong. He is he is again playing this character, you know, amazingly. You know, I, I guess you could say in a sense that he is the quote-unquote comic relief in the film, but he you can tell that his character, like Lundgren's Gunner character, has something to say and is um, the, the, I'd say the one the big way that he and Gunner are different is the fact that the character of Poe he is sticking to his ideals and he is sticking to his morals. And he is very adamant about saying no to these, uh, to these miners taking control of their Island and, and stripping of its minerals. He is, uh, he is, this is, he is a native of the land and he is adamant about not giving it up, not selling the rights.
1: Yeah. I I don't know if I would call him a uh, comic relief, even though he, for sure he's got a lot of humor and that was, uh, That's a big part of his character, but I think the humor was not necessarily to bring more comedy to the film like we can see in other movies, at least not with the same intentions and not with the same treatment, but he's, that's a contrast to the, you know, very serious, very badass, very, um, you know, dangerous mercenaries. And it's a way to mock them and to mock the the sort of you know American white you know power over you know uh foreign countries and so do world countries and they sort of show them uh how you know guns and power doesn't um doesn't do it all uh and also I'd say uh in some way he's almost uh a co-lead with uh gunner Dolph Rundgren's character. But I I, I especially appreciate their conversations and how I mean Poe is basically questioning uh Gunnar, you know, and helps him think and rethink his position in this uh Conflicting situation. And, um, uh, it's almost like, uh, yeah, they have kind of somehow philosophical conversations. And it's also, I think it's great because, I mean, the movie has a lot of action, but, um, those moments bring, uh, probably more dialogue than most of, uh, Dolph Rundgren's movies and they're good, well-written dialogues, um, uh, that are you know, it's not boring and it's not uninteresting. Uh it doesn't moves from the plot, it serves the story and uh its uh progression. And I think these are great moments and and and, uh another aspect that uh should have raised uh Dolph's career a little more and the type of project that is given.
0: Well, and, you know, we I agree with you completely. And these scenes where they are first on the island trying to convince the the locals to, to sign the papers, the, these scenes are, are extremely well done. And you can tell that this was a John Sayles piece that was intended as a drama because of these scenes. We get the hilarious scene where the villagers decide to play a joke on the soldiers. You know, the mercenaries are under the impression that they're getting ready to eat this delicacy that's offered only at ceremonies. And after drinking the contents of this egg, Dolph asks Poe, do you always eat this or is it just at ceremonies? And Poe's response is hilarious. uh, We don't eat that shit. You know, Uh, it's a funny scene that I remember laughing at in 95 and it still plays well. But yeah, I I love these scenes. We get to see the mercenaries getting acclimated to the island. Um, We see Poe giving Gunnar a tour of the island. Nolan is gambling with the locals. Ocker is finding peace within this environment, and Jamal is playing football with the children using a coconut. Like you said, they could have made this, you know, a, a, a Dolph Lundgren pitcher, which, you know, it, it certainly is, but the fact that they're giving each of these each of these mercenaries the uh, time on screen and giving them little, little character traits and character arcs, you have to appreciate, especially considering, let's face it, the character of Nolan ends up turning on on Lundgren later on in the film, but we see him early on. It's, you know, it's, it's, it makes sense in a, in a weird way, even though Nolan ends up becoming kind of one of the antagonists at the end of the movie, you do kind of in, in a weird way, you do sympathize and you do kind of understand why he's doing what he's doing. I mean, let's face it. They are mercenaries and they are hired to do a job for money. So You know, as as much as we maybe do not like Nolan at the end of the film, seeing that motivation and seeing these scenes early in the film, you do kind of sympathize and understand. Would you agree?
1: Uh, Absolutely. I mean, it's not uh, it's not black and white. And for instance, you know, he has Nolan uh, has a lot of funny moments, if I may say, uh, in the way um, Don Harvey plays it like for instance i like the way how he's getting to enter like you have the elders of the village who play some kind of uh some kind of gambling game uh in their own way and you know because nolan seems to be you know he's just like he's a player you know Mm -hmm. um you can tell he's a player and kind of like a he wants to make money. He wants to find treasures and, and, and he enjoys gambling. So, you know, no matter who he plays with or against, you know, he, he'll just, uh, enter the game. Right. Um, and, and, you know, like you said before, I mean, the thing is, um, you know, he's not like Kiefer and, uh, and he's a very, uh, I mean, definitely you sympathize with the character because he's, uh, very likable in a lot of ways. You know, he makes a choice later on, but, but he's not like a heartless, you know, um, villain as you, you know, you could tell of other characters, uh, like Kiefer, who's more like a, you know, attracted to, um, and probably struggling with these demons and, you know, killing and has a, a sort of taste for
0: blood. Right. Well, and I mean, you know, when you look at these, when you look at these mercenaries, you know, uh, Jimmy G, he ends up uh, at the end of the movie going to the other side, and so does the character of Blades. Blades early on, that that's the uh, Tiny Lister character. You you pretty much know Blades <laughs> at the beginning of the film is just this completely unhinged asshole. I mean, let's face it, Lundgren is able to break him out of prison to <laughs> to do the job. But when Jimmy G and Don Harvey go over, you know, like I said, it it, it makes sense and you do some, you do somewhat sympathize. But in any case, Gunnar hands the papers over to Poe to be signed. Poe refuses, and the meeting is cut short when one of the creeps, we haven't discussed this character, but um, the meeting is cut short. One of the creeps who we met 15 minutes earlier at the bar scene, he has assembled a team, and he begins shooting at many of the villagers. Uh, the fact that this island has jade, in it that's what they think they've come to uh, strip the island of is is the mineral jade. Um, the fact that the island could possibly have jade has has piqued the interest of many, including the uh, the creep from the bar. Th- this is one character I will admit. Uh, I'm watching it again. This is one character that I have to wonder is entirely necessary to the film. I mean, he's this he's this character who is just extremely sleazy and just oozes just such creepiness and sleaziness. But he seems to keep coming back in the film. And I found it, if we jump forward in the film, uh, going to the third act, I find it a little, um, I don't know if I believe it as much, the fact that Merrick is going to hire just this scumbag from a bar to, you know, rid the island of its villagers and take on Gunner. Maybe that's just my opinion. What do you think?
1: Well, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, this is one character I never liked. And that's also one of the additional characters that wasn't there initially. And it, it, it is very cartoonish and, yeah. uh, uh, and it, uh, and it's kind of a shame. They named him Gold Mouse because of his teeth and he's supposed to be some kind of pirate. And you know, I don't know if Merrick's, uh, really hires him, but he sorts of joins the cause, and, um, we don't know if maybe he has links with Kiefer, or, anyway, I guess they would, they would take anybody who would, you know, uh, join the, the fight, or, you know, the the extermination of the island, and, uh, and the islanders, so, um, but, yeah, he wasn't necessary, and like you said, he's kind of sleazy, and uh, that brings the, the, the film down a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but So, yeah, I, I I agree with you.
0: But the characters of Ro- Warren and Lyle, excuse me, so, uh, again, Perry Lang pops up once again, the director of the film. Warren and Lyle re-enter the picture, and we find out that Kiefer, he is essentially strong-arming them into becoming a partner and overseeing their job and you know part of it is over the jade much of it is over his hatred for gunner and the fact that you know gunner was hired for this task and not him so again we get to see the character of Kiefer just being evil as possible he's essentially a bully i mean not only is he a misogynist and you know a a prick to the core um but he is a bully and he started he i love the scene where he puts perry lang's Perry Lang's character of Lyle into a headlock and starts threatening them look either you're going to make me a partner in this or I can collect this money or I'm going to kill you right right here and now I know your angle you hired Nick Gunner to do a job
1: okay we'll hire you yeah
0: tell me something did you hire him (laughs) (laughs) no see he's he's my partner (laughs) Yeah, my point exactly. See, you can't hire me because I am your partner. (laughs) I'm sorry, you you don't understand. You see, uh, this is a privately owned company and there's just three shareholders and uh, there's no room. No room. Oh dear, no room you hear that? I said there's no room. <laughs> Alright, okay. Well, anyway, okay. it's about time we found a little so, fucking room. We in will, We'll call the lawyer right now and we'll uh, draw up a new contract. <laughs> now, how about immediately? Immediately.
1: Jack, now get my business card here!
0: Right. Now, my home phone number's on the back. And that here is my little fax number. And just feel free to pay to me anytime you like, night or day.
1: Yeah, again, he's very unpre- Kiefer is very unpredictable, right? Uh, and the one thing I, I was told uh, by Perry was that when they shot the scene, he actually had to recover uh, for. A few seconds or a minute because uh i i, I guess trevor goddard really went at it so. <laughs> uh i think that was a uh a tough moment for for perry when they did the scene
0: no it's a cool scene um but gunner you know again we were giving him so much you were talking about how we were comparing the character gunner to red scorpion's rechenko character you know gunner is, is given so much more to work with. And he started building a relationship. We talked about her briefly. Um, but yeah, he starts building a relationship with a local of the island, uh, Charlotte Lewis. She plays the character of Loki. And Loki becomes one of the factors who helps sway Gunnar's morals, in a sense. Um, we have some great interaction in these scenes. One scene in particular that, that I have to appreciate is Loki is asking Gunnar why he does what he does. You know, Being a mercenary, she assumes it's for the money. Uh, he could care less about the money. He states he's a paid soldier, and this is all he knows how to do. And I found this scene to be extremely profound. Even if they didn't make her a love interest, the fact that they are having this interaction and we're starting to kind of understand where Gunnar is coming from, I, I have to appreciate. Like I said, it's it's profound. Gunnar is a character. He doesn't want. He, he really doesn't want any violence. He doesn't want to kill. He's over his violent past, but this is all he knows how to do. He wants to collect this money and and move on. And I and I like these scenes. You know, when we see him at the beginning of the film, he almost appears to be somewhat suicidal because this is this is all he knows how to do. But I like these scenes because I, I wouldn't say that the Gunner character is a pacifist, but if you think about it, he really doesn't start using violence until the end, where the character of Blades is coming into the island and just pushing around the locals and firing off his weapon gunner doesn't want to do that gunner isn't doing that he is he's being you know extremely respectful of these well as respectful as a mercenary can be in in passing over the papers but yeah he's a paid soldier however he's he's over his violent past and he doesn't want he wants to get out of the situation he wants to get out of the island as swiftly and as peacefully as he knows how to do
1: yeah and you know like like you say you know he could have when they land on the island, they could have gone, you know, like bullies, you know, the way Blades, uh, wants to do it. I mean, Gunnar could have just take that, uh, that option, but it, it's not, uh, who he is. And he's a little bit more, uh, sensitive about it. Indeed, there's, uh, um, you know, several touching scenes that he has with Loki where she kinds of, pushes him and also where he opens up and talk about what he knows. And also he, um, you know, like he says, he has this line where he says, uh, it's a lifestyle money, you know, um, like you can tell he's questioning it. And also that he, he's almost, he almost has guilt about it. You know, the way the Western lifestyle is, you know, the, the, they they build their relationship until you know they they, they start to go by a river to kiss and and make love and uh, and that's really what you know part of the part of the storytelling and the, the the moments and the scenes that make the movie great to me i would also like to mention as well as loki i there's something great about the relationship that uh Nick has with Loki's son who doesn't speak uh, first of all the, the the kid actor that they that they cast is is really great uh there's something about his eyes and how he you know he has some sort of charisma on screen and um it seems that he from the beginning, he sort of identifies with Dolph's character, or he's taking him as a model. And at the same time, um, he probably sees a kind of uh, surrogate father. And from the the story, it seems that uh, his father... Um, no, wait. Uh, actually, I'm not sure. Um uh, Because Loki's father was like an American soldier. I'm not sure about, uh, the kid's father, but anyway, uh, I, I really like, you know, that connection that they have together. Oh yeah. Uh, and, and and like, like maybe I'm, I'm jumping ahead, but I just love during the battle, there's a slow motion moment that's kind of out of time where you see the kid in close up. You know, in the middle of, of, of the fighting, brutal fighting and, and you see Dolph picking him up and holding him while running through the, through the fights with a really, uh, sort of, um, ethereal musical score on it. um... Yeah, I was
0: actually going to bring that scene up as well. Yeah, I love that slow motion shot where Gunnar is rescuing this small boy in the midst of all this violence and mayhem. I mean, it's a brief scene, but we see the young boy looking helpless as Lundgren is sprinting to rescue him. You know, it's extremely similar. You know, John Woo did a scene, and I'm not going to say that John Woo, you know, copied um his scene in face-off from (laughs) that he excuse me that he copied men of war for for in the film face-off but there is another there's a scene in the film face-off uh with john travolta and Nicolas cage that is extremely similar where you have a little boy who's caught in the crossfire with all these bullets flying and all this mayhem and all this chaos and this little boy is just you know sitting there looking helpless and you have this melancholic score um, and face off i believe it's the song uh somewhere over the rainbow if i'm not mistaken um but yeah the both scenes play uh, play extremely well i love that um something else that you mentioned that i have to uh that, that I wanted to talk about real quick is yeah we do get a love scene between between gunner and Loki but the thing that i appreciate about it again coming out of this era is the film doesn't feel the need to linger unnecessarily on this moment i mean i guess it could have been like Showdown a Little Tokyo, I mean, that, let's face it, one of one of the charms about Showdown a Little Tokyo is just <laughs> how gratuitous and unnecessary so many of the scenes are in that film. But in Men of War, you know, they could have lingered unnecessarily on this moment, but they do not. We assume that they're falling for each other. They embrace and the film goes to black and moves on to the next scene. I thought that was a nice touch. It's simple. It lets you know what is going on. But it doesn't feel the need to be gratuitous or sleazy in any kind of way because this is not a sleazy movie.
1: No, because it's you know it's trying to show you genuine uh, affection and love mm-hmm. instead of you know uh, sort of sleazy uh, one night off. I also like how Dolph looks very vulnerable uh, at that moment because he's really opening up. Sort of stripping himself of his repressed emotions and his repressed inner conflicts and everything, right? Which is, like you said, it's not something you'd see in an action movie of that era or even today,
0: right? So going back real quick to the um, to the comparison between that scene in Men of War to Face Off, did you notice that, or did you think that at all regarding regarding just the child being? being in the middle of the mayhem with the slow motion shot, melancholic music. Did you notice that? Well, first of all, uh,
1: face off didn't come out until two years later. Uh, So um, even afterwards, I I didn't really connect uh, the two, but I can say that it's a recurrent figure, uh, an image that comes back in, in John Woo's movies. So it's a, it's a very interesting comparison. Like actually you, you even have moments like this in the, the TV pilot that John Wu did, uh, with Dolph Rangren called Black Jack, where he rescues and adopts, uh, uh, a nine year old girl. But specifically, I mean, I think there are other instances, but specifically, uh, when you mentioned it, it reminded me of one of the earlier John Woo movies that he did before a Better tomorrow and, and and all of his uh, most popular films. Uh, it was a film called Heroes Shed No Tears. Right, I've heard of that. I don't know if you've seen that. I've one. Never seen it,
0: but I've heard of it. I've heard of it. Where you know, it's funny how you mentioned that you uh, did your thesis on Lundgren. I actually did my um, my <laughs> my high school uh, thesis, you know, before graduating on the films of John Woo. And so I unfortunately never saw that one, but I am familiar with it. I did. I did read it.
1: Oh that's that's very cool if you still have a, a copy of it or you know a file I, I'd love to to read it even though I'm sure you know this was a long time ago and maybe you don't want to show it to me so but anyway in heroes shed no tears it's a it's a really strange film kind of a, a little bit out of time out of place uh, it's not perfect it's not a great movie but I saw it again, um, years after I, I had first seen it. Uh, I was working in a distribution company where we released, uh, uh, a remastered DVD of the film and I was in charge of this one. So I saw it again a bunch of times and the, the movie is sort of, yeah, it's a war movie. It, it's kind of strange, but it, it's very, um, there's something that it's very likable. And, uh, in that film, there's also a similar, uh, connection between the, the lead character and, uh, and a young boy. And, and when you mentioned John Woo, suddenly I had a flashback and I, and I was like, it, it's pretty much, uh, I mean, it's not exactly the same, but it was very similar than the, um, uh, the boy slash hero connection that we can, um see in uh, in Men of War so if you get the chance i'd recommend to see Heroes Shed No Tears it's a uh, you have to t- take it more like a you know it's really like an exploitation film uh, and i'm not sure that uh, John Woo is very proud of it but for instance if you like Bridge of Dragons there's also a lot of similar images like i wonder if Isaac Florent didn't uh, get inspired by it uh and it's pretty Pretty rough and
0: pretty violent as well. All right. I need to check that out. I'm going to add that to my to watch list. But uh, in any case, Blades, so going back to the film, Blades, who has always been a little unhinged. We talked about that already. He's had enough. He's had enough of, you know, sitting around. He wants to do his job. And that's what he keeps stating, actually. We are paid to do a job. Let's do a job. And so he's had enough. He begins storming the village and violently demanding that the villagers sign the papers. And we see how dedicated the villagers are. One man cuts off his own hand, rendering him unable to sign the papers. And the children start grabbing the soldiers' rifles and point them at their own heads. This is, I mean, we have these villagers who are, you know, they are, they have their ideals and they have their morals and they're not planning on leaving. And I love these scenes. And this is, at this point, this is where we get to see... The division in the uh, in the crew, uh, we find out the Warren and Lyle. They want the rights to the island. It's not for Jade, but they actually want the bird feces that have been collecting on the island for centuries. So there is absolutely no Jade <laughs> whatsoever. They want to kill these villagers and kick them out of the island for bird feces. Gunner sees the absurdity. And this entire, just this entire plan, killing innocent people over bird shit, as he calls it. And this is where, like you said, he makes the ultimate stand. And we get to see the division between the team of mercenaries. He's going to stand by the locals and defend them. And he gives his team an ultimatum. They can either stay on the island or they can leave and collect their money. Jimmy G, Nolan, and Blades, they leave. And again, like we talked about earlier, it, it, it makes sense why they would decide to leave because what, what Gunnar is sta saying, you know, to, to those who are uninformed, it, you know, I, I guess if I was one of these mercenaries, I'd be like, no, you're full of, you're full of shit. But yeah, Jimmy G, Nolan and Blades leave and Ocker, Jamal and Catherine Bell's character, they decide to, they decide to stay. So we have this real division there among the team.
1: Yeah, And, um, while we were at it, because the, this this moment takes place on uh, one of the beaches that they they shot on, and we didn't uh, we didn't talk about the locations because they shot this film in Thailand. Pretty rough to shoot at, especially since a lot of the locations that they that they used they were uh, like the you know the beach where the division occurs is now it has become one of the most famous most popular spots uh, for tourists in in uh, in krabi island no sorry i think krabi is not a it's not an island but it's a, uh it's a famous beach now and everybody goes there but at the time i think they sort of discovered it so it was very remote you can imagine bringing all the 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 crew the cast and the equipment over there and in some of the other locations, uh, logistically it was not a, an easy production. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the places that you can see in the film were uh, pretty much unknown at the time. So I can imagine the location scouts uh, being like real adventure trips.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, the, the, I I, I, w- I would personally love to see, and I guess. Um that the the village where they filmed a lot of these scenes is you know and I I spoke to P- Perry Lang and so that that episode for all listeners the the my interview with Perry Lang will be will be uploaded shortly after this but in speaking with Perry Lang I guess the village where where this film was shot they they kept it intact for a little period and it was used for other 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 productions and other films after Men of War, one of which was actually Mortal Kombat, coincidentally starring Trevor Goddard, the, the Kiefer character, so I don't know if you knew that or not, but I always thought that, that was interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think uh, like you said, and it happens uh, sometimes with movies, uh, thankfully because you, know, you don't want to trash everything all the time, but uh, yeah, some of the these things they were able to use on other productions and uh certainly Mortal Kombat must have been shot uh really uh right after Men of War so it was close and uh, uh I know the Van Damme's the quest shot in some of the same places. oh that makes well. sense
0: yeah that uh, makes and, sense I can picture it
1: and, and so yeah um uh, some of these things must have stayed for a while. Uh, it's a shame they, they, they're they're not uh, standing nowadays. It would have been great to to visit on a, yeah. On a trip. Yeah.
0: Well, the third act of the film becomes an all-out assault war film. So you can you can tell that this is what John Sales, when he wrote the script, again it was a it was a slow ticking bomb going to the end. And so this is this is quite the bomb. The final 35 minutes of the film are action packed. Most of the villagers are hiding underground in these caves, so then that way for, for their own safety. Um, and Gunner and what's left of his team have joined forces with some of the locals and are now defending the island. We have the characters of Keith, uh, excuse me, Kiefer, uh, Blades, Jimmy G, and Nolan. Uh, also, the creepy guy from the bar who keeps coming back, and now Merrick have landed on the island to secure what they want, and their goal is to decimate the island. And you know, I'm. Um, get all these villagers out, so that way they can collect, they can collect their money. Um, we have some disturbing scenes here. I mean, we have these lengthy battle scenes where American men are stacking the bodies of the villagers and burning them. It's, it's, it's extremely gruesome. And again, going back to it, it has a similar tone and just overall kind of, kind of ugly vibe. I, I get the same vibe that I did with 2008's Rambo. But again, I like both these movies, and I think the that that kind of ugliness and that kind of grit works to the film and is a strength to the film.
1: Yeah, they didn't tone down the violence. They didn't pull the punching the punches on this one, and uh, and even uh, some of it was uh, cut uh, for the U.S. versions, and uh, and in some other parts of the world. And indeed, it's truly uh, gruesome and. Uh, and I, and you know in France it was released uh uncut but the movie avoided uh the equivalent of a of an x rating uh so they had to pass an appeal by the rating board here uh so that it wouldn't get like uh here it's like uh restricted under 16 which is pretty much the equivalent of a, of an X rating uh, in France. Oh wow!
0: Yeah, well, I, I can definitely see that. Considering everything that we are seeing on screen, because yeah, this is this is pretty brutal. Um, the, the scenes that we're seeing, it's pretty brutal and unsettling. But it all it all works in the context of the film. It doesn't feel uh, gratuitous in any kind of way. It doesn't feel exploitive in any kind of way. I mean, this is real and I, I hate going back to the the whole idea of a uh, 2008 Rambo. But I remember when, when that came out, Stallone was getting a lot of uh, a lot of heat for um his film being, you know, for that, that particular film being way too violent. But I feel like in the context of the film in both these movies, both, you know, Rambo and, and men of war, I think it works and it. And it makes sense. In the context of the film, would you agree?
1: Yeah. I mean, the thing is, you know, especially I think maybe even more in the case of Rambo, you know, what he was, what Stallone was dealing with and everything, you know, you can't, it wouldn't be appropriate in a way, you know, to, to, to restrain yourself in terms of the, the violence and the whole, uh, you know, the consequences of you know the the violence and everything and his whole film was about you know was so nihilistic you know that uh it was part of the you know the the whole film and uh you know it's it's a different thing than you know showing a body count with like you know as uh, some kind of uh cartoon or video game where you know the the deaths, you know, don't matter. So, yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, in, in the case of Men of War, it's, you know, it's a film that deals with the, you know, questioning the um, the actions of uh, those corporations and you know, the the, um, the the methods that they use and and, you know, how are they legit you know to treat you know a natural island and its uh, natives and everything it's it's and uh, so that's a, a big question of the film
0: yeah i will say i will say regarding this violence at the end of the movie um, especially on watching it on you know my most recent viewing i will say that i feel the violence Feels slightly inconsistent in 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 some aspects, and I'm really just I'm really just thinking about two scenes in particular. There's the scene where um, Lundgren, uh, his character Nick Gunner, is on top of the or he's he's on like the the very top of uh, of this temple, and the, he has the rocket launcher, and there is the, uh, the 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 guys getting ready to sneak up behind him, and Nick Gunner obviously knows this. Um, we as the audience don't know that he knows that he's behind him, but he fires the, uh, the rocket behind him. And I mean, it's it's a cool scene because the the guy just gets, you know, completely charred and, <laughs> you know, he's completely burned up. And as, as Gunner's walking away from him, he, he, he says to this dead body, you shouldn't sneak up on people. And you just see the kind of the outline of this, uh, of this guy completely you know, just, just fried. And then there's the scene at the end of the movie where, um, or later on, it's maybe about five, 10 minutes later, where Kiefer fires the rocket launcher at his superior and mentor Merrick. And Merrick just, uh, explodes into what, what looks like confetti. I mean, I, I've, I'm not a firearm or a weapons expert by any means, but these two scenes, I kind of wonder, okay, if, if someone had a rocket launcher fired at them, I'm pretty sure that they would blow up, and if they did blow up, they wouldn't blow up into confetti. I don't know if you, <laughs> I don't know if right. you thought that.
1: I was mean, it. you know, it's it's a uh, it's a movie, uh, and I guess, for instance, with the the guys sneaking up behind, I think it was the the, the idea of having it having him uh, in the foreground of the shot was more interesting. Um, you know, it was sort of like a touch of humor, uh, among, you know, in the whole, um, battle situation. And especially when actually I think just a few seconds before, uh, Lundgren's character is just, uh, struggling with mounting his rocket launcher, you know, saying like, Oh, this is a piece of shit. And I, I think <laughs> it's, it, it's kind of, uh, brings a touch of humor that's uh well uh you know welcome in the way that it's sort of like okay he's he's not he's a mercenary and he's he's seen it all but he's also you know he's not uh 100% um you know all like uh you know the super soldier who doesn't you know he's human so
0: yeah what about what about Merrick being blown up in the confetti though? Did you did you yeah, did you I, wonder I've, that
1: as well? I've always had, first of all, I, I, that's probably one bit that I I've always have had a problem with, and I mean now I'm, you know, I've I've come to terms to terms with it, but I don't know about, first of all, the whole idea of you know having, you know, blowing him off with a rocket launcher, especially at such a short distance. Yeah, uh, and I think it's probably there's definitely a a, um, uh, a lack of budget in these scenes because uh, I'm I'm sure if they had the time and 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 uh, and a bit more money to uh, to complete the scene uh, perfectly, they probably would have added uh, some more effects and some more shots so it. Uh, so in the end, they, they, it looks like they they had to do it that way, otherwise. Uh, and I'm not sure when uh, during the production this was shot, but it looks like they, they couldn't uh, do it in the in the way it should have, you know. So but, they, they, they tried to make that up uh, as they
0: could. But you know what I will say is, you know, if you look at um if you look at a film that that Lundgren did. So many years later, uh, direct contact. There, there is the scene where um, where where Lundgren puts the grenade in the pants of uh, of Michael Perry, and he throws him out the window, and you just see this body just completely explode midair. And I always felt that scene looked a little silly and cheesy. The uh, the the blowing up of Merrick, um, as as silly as you know that may look, I feel that that holds up a little better and doesn't come off as uh as as odd looking as as the scene does in direct contact do you agree
1: oh yeah definitely and uh you know in direct contact which as you said was done you know uh almost i think like 15 years later uh they did it through cgi and it shows whereas the, there are no cgis in men of war even though they, they they existed back then but it was you know in 93 when they did the movie uh cgis were mostly for uh huge productions um uh, they couldn't do it on on uh, tv shows or uh lower budget uh action movies so every all the effects are practical effects in in the film and uh, and you know it shows that uh sometimes when you have more restrictions uh the result is is still better uh, when you try to come up with solutions uh, without the um, uh, the easiness of just oh you know we're gonna fix it in in post and and put on some digital effects. Yeah,
0: yeah. But you know, the, one of the other things that I really appreciate about this scene, you know, going back, it, it's kind of weird that we talked about um, we talked about John Woo and his film Face Off as much as we have. But I I distinctly remember when Face Off came out, an interview with Nicolas Cage and. I, I don't know if if John Woo has done this on all of his films, but one of the things that that I, I distinctly to this day remember reading was that what what Woo will allow the the actors to do when they are going in going into character is he allows them he allows each actor to pick out their own weapons. He says, okay, what what, what weapons do you do you feel that this character would um, would use you know when when he or she is in battle, and so. Um, one of the things about nicolas cage's character in in face off is he is always he's always handling these uh, these two gold plated um, pistols and so if if we look at uh, if we look at men of war in these in these final scenes gunner has some awesome unique weaponry here that we that we see him use i mean he's not just using a standard pistol or an AK-47, he's firing two unique weapons that you would not normally think about. Um, We see him firing a rocket launcher multiple times, uh, a rocket launcher at that. Um, But he seems mainly in this final battle, he seems to mainly be using a street sweeper as he's mowing down the opposing army. And I just thought that was such a cool, unique little touch that I can't help but wonder was that Perry Lang's idea was that Lundgren's idea or was that just was there a weapons person on set who said you know what why don't we have why don't we have the gunner character walking around with the with a street sweeper
1: you know i i'm sure it was a a combination of both because all the the uh, i mean i i think both Dolph and Perry you know brought their ideas and were all for using the fact that they made the the character swedish and so you know the rocket launcher is a swedish weapon i'm not sure about the other one but what i uh... what i appreciate about it is that even by the by the early nineties it wasn't a modern uh... machine gun uh... i'm not sure uh... when it appeared but that's something you you could see in the you know, in the fifties or something, or maybe even in the forties. So that's like a classic war firearm. And, 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 you can tell that there's also the, uh, the will to, uh, uh, to make this film a little bit timeless in a way and, and classic in the sense of the classic action adventure war movies of, of, uh, you know of the of the golden age and uh and it's it's part of it and uh and I would also say that even the other characters uh use their own weapons and use their own ways to defeat the um, the mercenaries so uh i mean the fact is the characters are you know have been um uh they've been worked out uh to to have their own personalities and to each have their own little tricks. And, you know, like you also have, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, the, the, the guy played by, uh, Anthony Dennison. Um, can't remember his name. Right oh, now. Jimmy G, Jimmy G. Yeah. Right. So, you know, he, he has like this his funny moments. He's this like, uh, you know, cocky Italian, uh, Italian American and, uh there's this bit in the in the club where you know he has all all these guns on him and and uh you know his his, his miniguns hidden in his boots uh those sort of things so and you know blades has uh the uh I think it's must be like a an M sixty yeah. uh machine gun which you know given his uh huge physique is uh right up his alley and you have uh, Aki, uh, who's a lot more uh, using like, uh, um, you know, uh, street fight and kind of almost like MMA before the time techniques and, you know, um, hand knives and stuff like that. So it's uh, it, it's been, a, the, the, you know, the, the, all this has been applied to, to each character.
0: Well, and, you know, I'm glad you brought that up regarding all of these, all of these characters, because as I was watching this again, I actually just watched the, the Expendables trilogy um, again on a, on a whim. And so, and uh, I'm going to be getting back to the Expendables here later on in the, um, later on in this, in this series, but on a slight tangent, there is a small part of me, I mean... Look, I, I, I love the Expendables movies for for what they are, especially when the original one came out, because I just thought it was such a cool idea, such a cool gimmick. But as I'm watching Men of War, there's a small part of me that wishes that this is what The Expendables was. And yeah. you know, by, by that, I mean, you know, I always thought it'd be interesting, especially after watching Men of War, I noticed this. How interesting would it have been if Expendables, at least the first movie, was this team of mercenaries who turn on their employer and then eventually they turn on each other as they're all fighting for different morals, etc. I, I honestly think that, you know, one of the problems with the Expendables movies, again, even maybe even the first one, is that all of these guys, all these big action guys, are together and they're all working on the same team and they all they all live at the end of the film. And I almost kind of wonder if maybe that film would have worked better if they had taken a cue from from men of war where we see all these action stars, um, together. And suddenly the team is divided and they are all, they're in an all out war, but against each other the team is divided. And they're, you know, Randy Couture and, uh, and Terry Cruz and Jason Statham, for example, or maybe on one team, uh, Gunnar Jensen and Stallone and, uh, and Jet Li, or maybe on the other team. Now, I, I don't know, but what, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And, uh, uh, you know, there's, there are two instances where they almost tried, or I'm not even sure they tried, but they almost went that way and, and, and backed out because as you know, in the, the original Expendable, Lundgren was supposed to, his character was supposed to die after the, you know, the couches and fighting Jet Lee and everything. Um, you know, he's taking a bullet from, From, uh, Sly's character and, and he was supposed to die in the, in the first scripts. And then, you know, uh, six months before production, uh, I think because, uh, Sly saw how, you know, the reaction after Lundgren casting in the movie, he had already decided to keep him alive, which is, which was both a good thing and a bad thing uh i wouldn't have minded if 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 he had died and uh and i know dorf was all for it as well um and and also in the third movie you have this uh you have way subplot, too many characters <laughs> um, yeah but but also uh you know you have the uh sly sort of like firing uh his old team and and so it's almost like the you know, they'd want to, uh, to sort of rebel against them or something like it could have brought some, something more dramatic about that. And it, it didn't happen. But as you said, you know, it, it definitely would have been stronger. I think if, even in the first movie, you didn't have just Lundgren being the, uh, the outcast and, 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 and turning, you know, turning out being, a uh a bad guy and and so that could have been a, a faction of the of the team definitely definitely and the the big problem is, in these movies even more so in the second and third one is the 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 lack of 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 real conflict and and real stakes
0: yeah well the third one is is a bit of a mess uh, <laughs> as, yeah. as as I watched it but in any case if more movies would look to men of war as as inspiration am i right? I think that would <laughs> that, that, that yeah. would make things better. But in any case, these uh, the, these scenes as as they get to the end, um, there there's a couple disturbing scenes. We talked about there was multiple disturbing scenes. Excuse me, but we talked about uh, the character of Kiefer uh, blowing up blowing up uh, Merrick, you know, with a, a point blank range with a rocket launcher. There's also the scene where the the entire mission is deemed as over. Uh, this is this is you know before Merrick gets blown up but where Poe um, comes out of the cave and, uh, and Poe raises the decapitated heads of Warren and Lyle. Extremely grisly scene. And this this is what makes Merrick realize, okay, you know what? This mission is over. This is done. And that upsets Kiefer. He fires the rocket launcher square at Merrick, blowing him up. We discussed, we discussed that already. But then, you know, th- this film wouldn't be complete without a final standoff between the character of Gunner and Kiefer. And so they fall into this underground cave and begin their final battle. I always thought this scene was extremely well choreographed. Um, just the fact that they are fighting in, uh, in, in water that is going up to their knees basically. And they are, um, you know, just, just going at it. Um, but there is, there is a funny scene that, uh, you talked earlier about the, uh, the lightheartedness. It's kind of brought in and just the right dose. And, uh, in this final assault. And there's there's the scene, same thing where Lundgren picks up an old hatchet because they're, they're in this cave where there's remains of all sorts of bodies and all sorts of old weapons from like prehistoric times, apparently. Um, But Lundgren picks up the, uh, the hatchet and runs at Kiefer and tries, you know, impaling him in the head with it. And it just breaks off on his head and just, (laughs) Just Lundgren's reaction, just how he says, fuck. You know, I just, I just love that yeah. scene.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, it, that's the, the thing with uh, this film is it takes itself seriously, but you know, sometimes it reminds you that, you know, uh, because it doesn't, uh, it's not a movie that's praising the, the military or, you know, war or everything. So it, it kind of, I mean, the entire movie, it's mocking its leading characters in a way, you mm-hmm. know, uh, just like the, uh, the island natives, you know, are just making fun of them. And so I think this is also part of it. Uh, and, uh, you know, just going back a little, I wanted to mention there's, uh, first of all, the, the entire, um, battle sequence, you know, the, the final act of the film is, Really, really well shot, especially for a budget that wasn't huge. And, uh, but they had, I think they, they probably, it, it probably took at least a couple of weeks to, to shoot, uh, those sequences and, and, and really you have, uh, really cool camera moves at times and, and, and you have many, many things going on on the screen. Um, I mean, it's really, really well done. And, uh, in terms of maybe not such a disturbing scene, but there's one that I really like is when Archer is dead on, on the beach and his native, native girlfriend is, you know, crying over his body desperate. Uh, and it's a, a slight slow motion and you know, you hear nothing but the waves. And you have Kiefer just shooting her in a very sort of again, it's 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 dramatic and it's giving importance to to death.
0: No, and you know you you wouldn't see, which is again what makes the fact that this got the release it did at least here in the states all the more disappointing because you wouldn't see. I, I mean, at least to you know to my knowledge, and I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I can't think of very many. Direct-to-video action pictures, especially around this time, that had shots like that. And I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, the the slow-motion shot. I mean, it's no. uh, it's being respectful of death. It's not being exploitive and gratuitous in any kind of way. Yeah. yeah no, I, I agree with you completely. Because like
1: I I think you you could see a scene like that in a you know in a in a more you know bigger budget and more in a movie in a big epic movie that would have more. Critical acclaim and stuff like that, you know, uh, let's say, I don't know, the, uh, saving private Ryan or, or the scene red line, but not in men of war. And it, actually, it's funny because I think in a way the, the men of war is kind of like Dolph's pre scene red line, even though it, you know, of course it's not Terence Malick's films, but it has, uh, in some way it has a similar uh premise we can say
0: well and you know you really uh you know you really i mean if you have not already developed a hatred for the character of Kiefer in in that scene that you're that you're speaking of yeah you at this point you want as an audience you you want him to to meet his maker and meet his come up and, and and what a way he does i the, the, this scene again this is 1994 and so the the death of Kiefer is is pretty is pretty gruesome and grisly by 1994 standards, um, you know. Considering you know what was what was coming out around the time, but yeah, uh, Kiefer meets his demise after Gunner is able to shove a bone through his jaw. It's it's a bizarre shot and it's very quick. But yeah, he shoves a bone through the bottom of his jaw and it comes up through his mouth. Kiefer then drowns him, drowns him in the water, finally killing him. You know, the the the, the bad guys of the film have have you know. M- had their comeuppance and and Lundgren and uh, um, those who decided to stay on the island with him. Ocker. Um, unfortunately he, he was killed in, in all the mayhem, but yeah, it, it's finally over. And um, we're able to see that Lundgren, despite all of this violence that has occurred, it's, it's, it's kind of in a weird way. Not only is he defending the village and defending the village against these attackers, but it's, it's kind of symbolic in a way you, you see him kind of, wrestling with his demons and saying goodbye to his violent, the violence of his past once and for all.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, regarding Kiefer scene, uh, it's, uh, also, I think that at the time, like nowadays, it would be, it would be more common to see, uh, shots like that, you know, of like having, uh, killing someone with a bone going through the, um, He's, uh, how do you say, um, you know, he, his jaw. And, and by the way, this was also, uh, it gets longer in the uncut version, but it was a little bit cut, uh, in the, in the R rated version. So it's even shorter. Uh, but you didn't see that as much back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and again, the fight scene between them is, is works really well. And, and Trevor Goddard. Was a really worthy, uh, fighter, um, to go at it with Dolph. And I'm not sure I right now, I can't think of any other fight scene that he he did since then. That's as effective. No. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, uh, and I think the, the, you know, uh, the aftermath, uh, the, uh, first of all, I think it's nice to see also. The cleaning, uh, cleansing of the, the bodies and the blood, uh, which you don't, you don't see in most movies either. And uh, and then you see the characters. I think that the, the final scene is somewhat important in the way that, um, you know, it's Dolph's character really being at his place. Uh, having found this place and as, uh, one of the, I think it was one of the producers that I interviewed, uh, who said, you know, because the original script title was called A Safe Place and, um, and one of the producers told me, you know, it's, um, it's about a character, uh, who finds a safe place physically and emotionally you know, and this is how it, how it ends. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I find it, uh, pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, no, I, and I, I always, I always liked that title as well, because I feel like a safe place, I, I think is a, a, certainly a more unique title for a film like this. I always thought, even when yeah. it came out in 95, I always thought men of war was just kind of standard, you know what I mean? It's, it's kind of like, well, yeah. It's yeah. what you'd pick picture out of a standard action movie, but in any case, Nick decides to stay on the island with Loki, Poe, um, and a little boy who he has built this bond with. We have a great ending with that melancholic score once again coming in as the end credits roll. It, it, it is a lovely scene. Um, you know they, they could have ended, you know, right after all of this death, um, but the fact that we, the fact that we get this scene where. Where Lundgren and Loki and Poe and this little boy are standing on the beach. I believe Jamal is next to them as well. Um, it's it's a sweet scene, and it, it it really helps bookend the film because if you think about it, going back to the opening, how, the way the film first opened, you know, with that with that melancholic music, and uh, um, I think it was in Chicago as the as the film opens. It's just kind of nice considering everything that we have seen, everything that we have been witness to, that the film. Um, opens and then closes on this sweet score. And we have just such a sense of finality and closure to everything that we've seen. I I always appreciated this as well.
1: Yeah, and and I mean, the film opens with Dolph's character being, you know, battered and kind of uh, drunk and, you know, completely lost. and, And it ends with him... Uh, with a face, you know, it's, it's like he, he has a peaceful face, you know, when, when the movie ends and on, um, you know, in the final shot of the film and, um, and, uh, so it's, it's like a different character, uh, at the end than he was at the beginning.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. Uh Jeremy, as we wrap this up, uh why in your opinion as as you know, we always do two recommendations, one as a Dolph Lundgren film and then one as a movie in general. Uh Jeremy, why does this get a recommend from you? Because I'm assuming it's going to get a recommend, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I think this is one of his top 2 best films, you know, in terms of uh of overall uh quality and production value and and uh And storytelling. Um, and this is also a film that I can, that I can recommend to people that are not necessarily into Dolph Lundgren or who are not necessarily into, uh, B action flicks. And this is, this is why I think this is one of his best films. And, and personally, I also, I've always appreciated the, the themes. Uh, there are dealt in, in the film and the fact that it is, uh, a full-on action film. So you won't di- be disappointed about it. Uh, it's really well shot and everything. Uh, especially in, you know, in Thailand, uh, which is great. And, but also because it's, it's a film about, um, you know, a character who questions himself and who's looking for something, uh, like he's, uh, looking f- in a way, it's like a, a quest for an identity and, and, uh, a sense of purpose. And, uh, um, and in a way at the time for Dolph as an action star, uh, I feel, um, this was great, you know, for someone being typecast in, as being acting is in dumb action violent movies to make a film that uh that question those teams uh, and uh so for me it makes it really a a a quality uh action flick
0: yeah no I, i'm right there with you i think this is a stellar performance from Dolph. you know he is playing a badass sure that's what that's what Lundgren is known for, especially around this time. So that only makes sense. But what's different about this performance here is in this one, Lundgren is playing a badass mercenary, but one with a heart, and that that is what I love about it. His character is certainly unique in that sense. This is showing everyone that he can act. You know, I have a neighbor actually who is not the biggest not the biggest Lundgren fan. Um, I, I went through my uh, I went through everything that I have at home, and this was the first film that I pulled out. Like, okay, look. You're not the biggest fan if you only know him as Drago or as He-Man, or if you've seen Universal Soldier. Check this out because this will this will change everything that you've ever thought, anything that you've ever seen. Um, so I, I, I got to give major props to Perry Lang for getting Lundgren to go there in terms of his acting. Of course, I got to give those props to Lundgren as well, but the fact that Perry Lang was able to do this on the budget that he did and um, have this just look so good. You know, I I have the most respect for them. As a movie, I I think it definitely gets a recommend as well. It's action-packed, yes, but it also, again, has a lot of heart and a lot of pathos at its core. Everyone is acting their tails off, which makes it all the more sad that this one was just relegated to -to direct-to-video here in the States, because I think this would have surprised many. For a film that is... A film that is well over 24 years old, I'm actually surprised at how well it still holds up to this day.
1: Yeah, and to be honest, I think, you know, uh, almost everybody who's seen it, I mean, most people who have seen it enjoyed it, you know, and it's really the case of a film that is not well known and, uh, as you mentioned, has a generic... Title that's not necessarily appealing, uh, and very stereotyped, but when people get a chance to see it, they're usually surprised and, um, and, and, and I'm sure, you know, it, it may not be a cult classic like, you know, the Punisher or Showdown in Little Tokyo, or even I Come in Peace, because I guess it's, it doesn't, uh, it's not in the same kind of uh, uh, realm of fun, if I may say so. But it's it's. Uh, I think we can say it's con- still considered one of his best films uh, as a as a leading man.
0: Well, and you know, as we were as we were as we've been talking about this, the the other thing that I will put out there um, to, to all the listeners and all the fans, you know. If you compare this episode with some of the previous episodes, you know, when we were discussing Showdown, A Little Tokyo, we were just having a ton of fun laughing about that one. Same thing with I Come in Peace. We were throwing all sorts of jokes out there. In this film, we have been, <laughs> in discussing this film, we've been extremely serious this this entire time. I mean, with with not a heck of a lot of levity. And I think that is just a testament to to the film and just how well-made this film is and how serious it is. The fact that there's really not... Anything for us to really joke about in this episode, um, and you know, and, and sadly, the, the next couple episodes, "A uh, Hidden Assassin" and, and "Silent Trigger," may be the same because those are also excellent performances from Dolph. But, uh, but yeah, we're, we're going to get some levity again in the in the filmography of Lundgren. But the fact that we haven't been joking a heck of a lot, I think, is just um, further evidence of the fact of how how well made and how serious the overall tone of this film is. Right. <laughs> So, um, and I, I, I guess if, uh, if anyone is interested, there is a, uh, there is a region, it's not available here in the States, uh, unfortunately yet, but there is a, a, what is it? Is it a director's cut? But you are featured on, on a special feature of one of the, uh, of one of the releases of the film. Is that right?
1: Oh, that's right. I almost forgot about it. Yes. Uh, I, I did, I produced a 12 minutes, uh featurette uh in the special features of the German Blu-ray edition uh that you can find from Platinum Cult edition. And uh I did basically I talked over uh about the the making of the film, the genesis of the, the script and some anecdotes uh about the film uh so it's uh it's in English uh, unfortunately, if you live in America, this edition is a region B locked edition. So you might need to, um, you need to have a region free player. And, uh, actually, I, reg- I recommend everybody to, to, um, to find a region free player because that's the way to get all the best editions, uh, that you can find, uh, when you are, uh, uh, a completist. And so I'm glad I could, I, I could do this. Uh, there is, you can actually find the clip online on YouTube and Vimeo. Um, the title of the, the special feature is called An Unsafe Place, The Making of Men of War. And, uh, maybe at some point I'll be able to upload the entire, uh, uh featurette and, and hopefully I'll get a chance to, um, tackle Men of War even more, uh, when I can, uh, complete my big project of a, of a, uh, a Dolph anthology book.
0: Oh, very cool. Well, I'm going to include a link to that, uh, to that snippet, that video. I, I, what is it, about a minute and a half or so roughly, but I'm going to include the link to that in the show notes and to all the listeners and the fans out there. Um, here in America are we any closer to seeing the the publication and release of the uh, of the making of the Punisher book good question
1: uh, I'm uh, I'm still editing the book uh, so it's getting closer it's uh, it's a huge um, labor of love so you know as we say the the devil is in the details yeah. and there are many 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 details to to cover and to pay attention to but what i can say is i'm really proud of where it's going it's pretty huge and it's a really really complete uh... behind the scenes book so uh... you know everything you wondered about the Punisher, you'll likely get the the answer to it or you know unless you have a really 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 tricky question about it and you can always uh... Shoot me your your questions on on the uh, on the Facebook page of the films or Twitter, uh, and um, but I I'm really looking forward to uh, to release it and um, and hopefully we'll we'll do some promotion in the states and maybe elsewhere. I'm brainstorming about the possibilities and and. Uh, but uh that's gonna be great. So thank you for your patience. I know it's taking longer than even I had planned, but uh it's gonna be worth it. Well
0: your uh I, I know that your book, I'm I'm looking forward to it, um, but I know that your book has actually it's it's gotten the the approval and the praise from the big guy himself, from Dolph himself. So that right there is is a huge accomplishment. I hope that uh this show gets the attention and gets the approval of of the big guy eventually. So <laughs>
1: Yeah and and I've got some really great reviews in France for the French edition and uh and I think uh, I hope that the the book will help also to uh uh to rehabilitate the film and uh uh give him a, a better place uh among the um, you know the the action films of the era and uh uh because it, it, it's definitely a gem um you know, so it, it deserves it.
0: Well, very cool, very cool. Well, hey, Jeremy, thank you once again for joining me. I know that you're going to be back uh, multiple times, but I really do. I've enjoyed breaking this film down. So thank you again for for agreeing to come on and uh, this and discuss this this gem in the uh, in the filmography of Dolph. Uh, to everyone out there who is listening, please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews and. We'll see you all next time on I Must Break This Podcast.